Noah. It's Zach Langley Titi. And I'm not popular. I am not popular. That's the name of this segment that I have decided to start doing. Uh, at the end of every month, every last Saturday of the month, I am going to be running this new program. And I'm calling it I'm Not Popular because guess what, girls? It's just me. No one else, uh, no other gay men, no white gay men that y'all have been complaining about overstuffing the podcast. Just little old me. Um, except for tonight I have a studio audience. Uh, I have my friend Wilson who's taking some pictures of me for his job. Oh, God, thank you for showing that to me. He just showed me the ugliest picture I've ever seen, and my hat needs to go the other way. Say hi, Wilson. Hi. Hi, Wilson. (laughs) So basically, the way that I'm not popular is going to work is I'm going to talk about whatever movies, books, whatever music, basically anything I didn't get to address on the main episodes of the pod, I'm going to cover here. Uh, So tonight we're going to talk about what I've been reading, some of the movies I've been watching, what I'm listening to, and then two of the very hot topics I'm dying to get to. Uh, Please enjoy the sound of Wilson's clicks of the Canon camera over there. The best way I can think of starting this is with a discussion of my favorite topic of all time, which is cancellations and being canceled, because guess who's canceled again? None other than Jeffree Star. I am so fucking sick of talking about Jeffree Star being canceled. It's all anyone ever talks about. So basically, Jeffree Star has posted a picture on Instagram of him and his new boo, um, this anonymous man by the name of Andre Morehold. Andre Morhold, I believe. I found this out on, like, TMZ or something. But, yeah, basically, Jeffree Star posted a picture of them together on Instagram with uh, just his arms showing before, then only a few hours later, posting an Instagram story also featuring this man's face. Uh, He's a basketball player overseas. I guess he played uh, college professionally, and now he's out in Europe I guess, playing some sort of basketball, except that Jeffree Star has flown this this poor unsuspecting soul to his hell mansion um, for what I can only imagine is a lot of sex and debauchery. And, of course, everyone has a fucking hot take about this one, don't they? Everyone is just deluge... <clears throat> everyone is just furious, as usual, that uh, Jeffree Star exists. And listen, I'm not going to defend this makeup guru, capitalist monster, because we all know that there's been some extremely repulsive moments in Jeffree Star's history. The racism, the blackface, from what I understand, the slurs. Um, Yeah, it's it's no good, girls. It's no good. No racism, please. But um, can we get a new topic? Like, I'm... (laughs) I just don't understand why people keep bringing up Jeffree Star every time anything happens with him. Anytime he's been canceled for whatever nonsense is going on on YouTube, whatever drama he has with that fucking bitch Tati Westbrook or James Charles or literally anyone else, someone wants to bring it up. And it is just demonstrating to me how pointless all this canceling is because 
it can go nowhere. Like, by canceling Jeffree Star over and over again and bringing him up and saying, but hey, don't you remember how this isn't really a good look? Racism isn't a good look. This isn't okay. Like, bringing his name up, tweeting about him en masse, and trying to yell at anyone else who's tweeting about Like, all of it is just an infinite feedback loop. Once you've canceled someone, you immediately initiate them into a new public sphere in which they get even more attention than they did before. It's just so counterproductive. If the goal of canceling people is you want to, quote, de-platform them, unquote, then you have to stop talking about them and stop platforming them. Um, And I guess most of this controversy, this new controversy kind of... Um, peaked because his new boo thing is uh, a black man. So people are calling this man all sorts of things. And listen, I'm not going to judge. Certainly not my place um, who you're going to date. I have had a fair share of conservatives and Trump supporters in my bed before. So it's really not my place to say anything about him. But um, I just also want to kind of like take a moment to acknowledge that, like, these, like, men who could previously be, be described as heterosexual, like, uh, I don't even know Jeffree Star's last boyfriend name. How am I supposed to remember all of this? It's, like, Nathan or whatever. Like, basically him and this new man are both, like, straight presenting men who are now having public relationships with uh, kind of gender non-conforming people. I think that is very special because... One of the major, like, last frontiers for gay people and for lesbian women and for transgender people and basically for any LGBT people at all, like, our last frontier is, like, getting these men, mostly, who are ashamed of interacting with us in public um, while they are having sex with us. It's basically to get them to be open about it. And so now we have this poor man, Andre Morehold, whatever you have it. He is out here. He's being public with Jeffree Star. And, you know, for that, I kind of, like, I kind of applaud him. Like, you go diva. Like, you go and hook up with this, you know, gender non-conforming, like, gay nightmare. It's, like, pushing the culture forward. I think, like, this is something that we should celebrate. Um, But we're not celebrating Jeffree Star because, you know, he's a racist and problematic and canceled. So wonderful. And speaking of people who are canceled, let's talk about the Republican National Convention. (laughs) What a wonderful leeway. I'm so good at doing this. Uh, Like, I am pretty convinced on, uh, like, I definitely want to do this solo episode so I can really address everything I want to on the podcast. But the reason my YouTube career never started is because the idea of me talking to no one at nothing for extended periods of time is like repulsive. And like, here I am just like letting my brain empty out onto the microphone while Wilson takes my picture. Did you hear that? Did you hear the snap? That was so well-timed. Is that a good one, Wilson? God, do I look like that? Okay. Some of these are okay. Oh, wait, wait. I like that. Go back to, I like that one. Just don't do anywhere I look, like, wide, please. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he literally showed me a picture where it's like, this is a good one, where I literally am the same width as Jabba the Hutt. 
and my neck blends in with my unshaven face. This is humiliating. That one's okay. It's fine. Well, that is actually something I can leeway from because what is humiliating, what is truly humiliating is both the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention. If you don't know what these are, I do not blame you because um, they have truly no bearing on anything except to just whip up political rhetoric. So if you don't know what these are, don't beat yourself up. But basically, um, all these associates of the politician, any celebrity or local businesswoman they can find is being dragged out for these hellacious like zoom nightmares they're not really zoom but it's like these empty performance halls where they're having these people speak and it is genuinely uncanny truly uncanny um the dnc kind of uh featured some iconic moments in history we got to see billy porter make an utter fool of himself dancing around in front of a flag so earnestly in the ugliest outfit i've ever seen like trying to bring down trump Uh, i thought that was kind of a beautiful (laughs) beautiful tragic moment like he just did it with so much heart heart like just so much heartfulness and so much like belief in what he was doing as revolutionary i just really cannot (laughs) I just I just cannot help but be touched by his disgusting earnesty. <laughs> like, good for you, Diva. Um, the DNC was really boring. The only drama we got was that AOC did her nomination of um, Bernie Sanders, which is a uh, it's a staple of these conferences. They always nominate people from across the Democratic aisle so that they can kind of show solidarity within the party. And NBC had their take and was uh, trying to make it seem like the Democrats are more divided than ever, which is true, but not for that reason. Meanwhile, the Republican National Convention is just nothing but skinny, blonde, white women making utter fools of themselves as they walk on stage like literal androids and like barely manage to function at all. It is spellbinding. There is a woman from Montana who uh, has to come on the pod who was just so out of her element in that big empty room as she just looked around and she kept like looking up and she said, Jesus, our country has lost the belief in Jesus. And she like looks up like six times before and after mentioning Jesus as if she's like really hoping that he comes in. <laughs> He's not coming, girl. It's just you and you're ex-marine husband i wish i was her where's my ex-marine husband i would be a totally like stepford wife like empty vessel if it meant like i had like a ripped like mask ex-marine husband waiting for me at home to help me manage my coffee shops my chain of coffee shops in montana see that is the american dream she was right it's a gay american dream um I have literally no way to segue that into into the topic I want to talk about next, which is uh, what I was reading. So I'm just going to say, bye, Republicans, and hello, Oscar Wilde. (laughs) I'm actually reading, um, like, three books concurrently right now. I'm finishing up Sexual Personae, and uh, I'm halfway through the latest entry in uh, the Twilight Saga called Midnight Sun, but I plan on doing a full episode on both of those, so I'm not going to talk about them today. I am going to talk 
a little bit about the picture of Dorian Gray, uh, which I read in just two sittings. I ate ate it up like I ate it up like a twink uh, just finishing their pre-Fire Island starvation chain. I read the picture of Dorian Gray because uh, it was mentioned in Sexual Personae, and I had read like half of it in high school, I think, like uh, enough of it, and it never really clicked with me. But since then, I have been just enmeshed in all aesthetics of male beauty. I just think it's like such an untouched like realm of art and culture and any gay authors like making literature or film about it, I'm utterly fascinated with. So I thought it was time to give it my due thought. And I did like it a lot. Uh, I think the writing is really sardonic and like kind of classically homosexual in that way. And it's especially interesting to think about how wild was like, you know, a functioning gay man without a gay culture around him and his view of aesthetics and kind of the way he describes beauty and a relationship with it in this book has become sort of like the foundation for how all gay men uh, assess beauty. And in the Paglia, which I'm, I'm not going to get into that much, but in the Paglia, she says that gay men are like the last, the last great preservers of the male aesthetic. And I can totally see where that comes from, like reading um, Dorian Gray, because this novel is just so obsessed with the consuming way that beauty, how beauty rules culture. And I've never read like basically anything that is quite as aware of that fact as this novel. Um, I will say I don't find it as successful as I was hoping it to be. I also read um, Mishima Yukio's Kinjiki, Forbidden Colors, uh, earlier this year. I think it was like the first or second novel I completed this year, which is also about uh, gay beauty from a much more like outwardly homosexual perspective. And in that book, we really get like the whole range of evil and fascism that comes out of male beauty. Um, And this book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, kind of sits with it for a while and demonstrates it, but it never really goes all the way. There's a lot of restraint, and I think it's probably because of the British censors at the time, but we never really get to see the extent of truly how evil Dorian becomes because of his beauty, Um, and then the ending punishes him with moralism and death, which just is so unfortunate to me. I feel like the correct ending for a book like this is to show that evil male beauty, show all of its damage, all of the wreckage it produces, and then end it. Like, I don't need to see them be punished because the reality is that they're not punished. And I can really tell that Wilde is also not interested in this moralist part of the story. Like, it's so tacked in at the end. And even though, like, the central, like, Faustian metaphor of, like, the portrait is like, oh, it's bad, it's making him evil on the inside, like... I don't really think that we have to resolve that with a moral. And yet at the very end, we have to see good old Dorian Gray, this beautiful twink, just slaughtered by himself. Um, And like, I get it. I'm not dumb. Like, (laughs) I know that that's like the inevitable result of it. But I think it's just kind of like a cheap, it's kind of a cheap exit for a book I think is really sophisticated and complicated about beauty. Uh, Overall, I say if you haven't read it, I would check it out. Um, Wild is just really that good at gay wit that I think it's totally worth it if you're 
interested in that. And the elements of beauty that are there are super compelling. I just find that the ending is such a flop. Such a flop. Beauty is actually the perfect segue into what we're going to discuss next. You still don't understand. Understand what? Who I am. Who are you? You don't even understand who you are. Why are you sitting here? Why are you here? What you just listened to is from uh, one of the movies we'll be discussing this month, which is Paul Schrader's 1980 feature, American Gigolo. I watched this with my friend John just the other night. Uh, I watched Schrader's uh, Mishima, uh, his um, kind of dramatic retelling of Mishima's life that he also did in the 80s. I thought it was breathtaking. Four and a half out of five stars. The sets and the design and the direction um, and the truly evocative like telling of that film really, really served me my tea, girl. Like it really gave me everything I was looking for. So I'm, I'm very interested in kind of reimmersing myself in Paul Schrader. So I have seen American Gigolo once when I was in high school. And I think it was one of those movies I watched when I was just like rotting away on Tumblr and I had it playing in the background because I remember none of it at all, at all. And um, going back into it, I was really surprised at um, how little plot this movie works with. It has the elements. It has um, Richard Gere as a male prostitute in California in the 80s. I guess like the late 70s when it was filmed, but you know, whatever. And he's wrapped up with a politician's wife. He kind of learns to love her, and he's framed for a murder. And um, anyone coming to this movie for the plot is in for a disappointment, because the best parts of this movie is the tone. The best part of this movie, by far, is the tone and the feel. It has that really, like, soupy, sad, like, neo-noir California look to it. Um, And that it also kind of portends to be about, you know, male beauty, gives it a a really interesting aesthetic appeal. And I think that the aesthetic appeal here is worthy enough to warrant a viewing simply because everything in this movie is gorgeous. Um, The direction has a bunch of really interesting, odd flourishes to it. It's really obsessed with, like, the blinds on windows and there's a few scenes that employ the lighting and the weird stage design that um Schrader was very good at deploying in Mishima to create some scenes that are like honestly quite uncomfortable uh, we have one scene where um our hero is hunting down some jewels placed somewhere in his apartment that are perhaps being used to frame him. And he goes into his house to tear it up. And the entire scene leading up to him wrecking his whole room is so slow and uncomfortable. And that was, I think, one of my favorite parts of the whole project was seeing the way that Schrader could kind of get you uncomfortable with this like beautiful male idol on screen all the while depicting him as nothing but gorgeous. Um, the makeup in this movie is really something to talk about. It's 
it's stunning. Like, there is not a single pore to be seen in this movie, and yet everyone still looks human and fresh and lifelike. Any scene in which uh, Richard Gere is in the car, fucking stunning. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous. And it just kind of makes me sad, because we have so much aesthetically going for this. Really strong direction, uh, a compelling score from... Uh, the hero of all electronic music, a Giorgio Morador. And we have all of these amazing pieces in place. But when the movie starts to formalize what it's trying to say with a theme, it kind of just doesn't go anywhere. I made this complaint about Wilde that he kind of lets moralism win for no reason except that it's easy. And this movie is even more offensive of that. The problem here is that we have a lonely hero. We have this lonely character who is incapable of making meaningful relationships. He is psychologically broken, and a lot of that is related to his beauty and is related to um, like the superficial um, elements in which he inhabits the world. We basically see this character do nothing but uh, gain and gain and gain throughout the movie. And so when it starts punishing him, I was like kind of thrilled because it seemed like it was going to really like show like a dark end to this aesthetic line. And instead, what we get is a really simple moralist conclusion where this beautiful nightmare image of a man finds love in the politician's wife, her character. It ended on a really boring note for me. It seemed just simply so easy and accessible that, like, I just couldn't help myself but be disappointed that we didn't get to, like, see, like, the full extent of where, where this cruelty of beauty leads. Um, and it kind of cheapens the rest of the movie and all of this interesting engagement with um, the beautiful male hero is kind of thrown away at that last minute where it says, oh, he can be redeemed. And maybe it sounds like I'm contradicting myself because I said that what I don't like about the picture of Dorian Gray is that it ends with like a moralist um, death of this character. But the reason I don't like that is because it kind of does feel like it's letting this beauty off the hook and just saying, well, it destroys itself in the end. And this movie is saying, it, oh, it exists, but it can be redeemed with love. And I am of the opinion that um, the fascism of male beauty can neither be redeemed by love nor simply destroyed with death. I think that this institution is so baked into our cultural consciousness that um, its effects are much more immortal than that. So I'm still kind of waiting for a piece of art to really get it right with depicting the horror of male beauty. I think the closest I've read so far is um, the Mishima novel I read earlier this year, Forbidden Colors, uh, where the protagonist uh, ends denying his gay life and trying to embrace um, his his wife and his new child and reject the sort of patron he had that was giving him all this money throughout the course of the novel just for being beautiful and for um, kind of like serving as a, 
an actor on his behalf to ruin the lives of women. Sorry, it's kind of a tangent. But in any case, the novel ends and this character, this beautiful male Yuichi, he does not get to die. He does not get to have love redeem him, but he in fact ends up saddled for the rest of his life with the torture of uh, his beauty because his patron bestows upon him a great deal of money from which he cannot um, remove from himself and he will be relying on that money for the rest of his life. So his beauty is always going to be intrinsically linked to him no matter what. And I think that's a more... Mm, impactful statement than anything we get out of American Gigolo or the picture of Dorian Gray. I will say that there are some fabulous tense moments in American Gigolo uh, between Richard Gere's character and the women that we only, we only get to see him really like do his job like one time really. But that scene um, in which he's involved in a kind of cuckolding situation has a lot of fascinating slow building tension in it that i thought was sadly kind of underdeployed in the rest of the movie zach langley chichi says three out of five stars watch it if you want some mortar remixes of call me by blondie and you're feeling the 80s beautiful man aesthetic there's definitely like something there but um i just don't think it reaches to its full potential let's get to the next movie knows about you, about us. He'll kill you and me. He'll... Damn! This sounds like dialogue from our script. Cut, cut it. <laughs> What's going on? What? What the bloody hell's going on? That was from 2006's Inland Empire, directed by David Lynch, starring Laura Dern and Justin Theroux. And this movie is basically responsible for me kicking right back into David Lynch. I tried to watch Twin Peaks in high school, maybe the beginning of college, and I saw Mulholland Drive, and I didn't really care for either at the time. For me, David Lynch's tone, when I was first trying to get into him, I didn't really, like, make the, the, I didn't really make, like, the ideological gap between, like, the melodrama and the soap opera and the honest campiness of it with, like, the weird horror elements that were going on, but Inland Empire, which I just watched on a whim by myself on my laptop with earbuds in, it totally made that link for me. Uh, This movie I guess, pretends to be about an actress who has taken a role in a potentially cursed movie, um, and she gets involved with some of the Poles, the Polish people, and her experience on the film slowly starts to deteriorate her character and her sense of self, and very soon, any notion of plot is out the window, and we are in these very slow very patient uh, moments of surreality where certainly there is a common thread linking all of like the plot elements together on screen, but it is so bogged down in character switches and characters being their characters and characters not being characters and characters being the actors and the actors not being... It's so much going on that um, 
for a first viewing, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who can give you an accurate summation of the plot. I told my friend Ivy that this is uh, probably the most impenetrable David Lynch movie from what I've seen so far, and that kind of seems to be the popular perception. Lynch says that this movie is about a woman in trouble. Uh, Is it the woman watching all this happen on her TV screen at the very beginning of the movie? Is it Laura Dern? Is it that horrifying face of Laura Dern edited onto the antagonist who, why is he the antagonist? We don't know. Basically, this movie is three hours and like 20 minutes of extremely loose filmmaking. And if it sounds like I don't like it, you're totally wrong because I love it. I've never seen a movie that um, triggered such a unique kind of anxiety in me and what it was deriving that anxiety from. Because I think the fundamental frightening element of this movie is the horrifying distance between yourself and the image you try to create of yourself. Um, Of course, actors and actresses are the individuals perhaps most exposed to that kind of dichotomy because uh, they have to adapt a new personality into themselves on film. Obviously, writers, artists, everyone is doing it. But um, Lynch chooses actors and actresses in Hollywood as his backdrop uh, because it's a really uh, tangible entryway uh, considering the medium of film in which this piece of art is being created. So I think it is really about that kind of tension between the self and the self you try to create or the self that others perceive you to possess. And the tension and the anxiety that derives from that is unparalleled. Honestly, I have never been more unsettled by a movie, I think. I'm really trying to go back to a movie that has made me so profoundly uncomfortable and nothing really quite comes to mind. Like a lot of horror movies get that tension right, but this movie isn't anything of a horror movie until maybe about like the midway point. It has its very surreal and frightening kind of horror-esque scenes but it's not until we really see like the Laura Dern character like totally dissolve into another character um that we start to get this very deep-seated under the skin kind of anxiety going on and it leads to a few scares that are so fucking frightening it would be sin for me to spoil them I really can't recommend this movie enough But at the same time, I can't recommend it at all. It's like both here and there because it is really inaccessible. It requires a lot out of the viewer and a lot of attention, and it gives you no pleasure in return. This movie is satisfying on virtually no levels. What it shoots for instead is to evoke um, the sensation of losing your identity, I think. I could be totally wrong about this, but this is just like the sensual experience I had watching it by myself. There's a fantastic scene with the locomotion. There's uh, lots of death. There are flashing lights. There's sex and violence and knives, some hammers, people with things in their mouth. Uh, Aesthetically, this movie is like really gutturally fascinating, I think. So I really enjoyed a lot of the images I was seeing, even if the plot kind of meant nothing at times or meant everything 
it's impossible to say. <laughs> I think that the reason that this movie also was able to kind of like bridge that aesthetic gap for me um, of David Lynch's like soap opera melodramatics and his really supremely unsettling horror is because this movie is very smart about the way it deals in tropes. Like there's a lot of like cliche and familiar stuff going on here, but he views it with a lens that is unlike anything else I've seen before. And one thing you'll know about this movie is uh, immediately, you'll know this right away, is that it is shot with a very basic digital um, camera and it makes for a muddy, unfocused, like anti-cinematic image. It's really ugly in a lot of ways. And yet all of these grand dramatics are happening in this frame that is so washed out and difficult to look at that it just totally diffuses all sense of cinema. And I think that's maybe the best effect of this movie. Like, I think anyone can kind of get this, is that they watch a movie that is acting like a movie, but in every way is also pushing against it. I think that if you're into, like, postmodern, like, filmmaking, that you kind of can't go wrong with this, but unless you're prepared to be totally slapped in the face by a movie, beaten up by it, and told that you get nothing from it except what you can make, I guess it'd be hard to recommend, but I'm going to say I really can't recommend it enough, even while I can't. Four and a half out of five, says Zach Lee Chi-Chi. Let's talk about our next movie. Directed by Koji Wakamatsu from the year 2007. Um, this is called United Red Army here in the States. Don't know why I said here, because I am not in the States. I am in Nippon. But uh, yes, United Red Army. Wakamatsu Koji is a um, well-respected artur within the Pinku Ega uh, genre of film. Pinku Ega means pink movie <laughs> for those Nihongo Shabrinai no Ito. And basically, Pinku Ega was a movement of pornographic films in Japan um, where they kind of just threw very small budgets at directors to make feature-length uh, pornographic films in which they could depict any um, subject matter they wanted so long as every 7 to 10 minutes you got some titties or you got some fucking. And Wakamatsu used this medium along with another, along with a lot of other directors at the time um, to touch on a lot of themes of activism, communism, political unrest, and sexual anxiety. So he kind of used this forum as a means um, to make some very politically intricate statements. Uh, perhaps some of his best-known movies are within this uh, movement of film, <clears throat> including uh, Go Go, Second Time Virgin, which I think is kind of even well-known like outside of his wheelhouse. We also have Season of Terror, which I actually watched just uh, last month, I think. And all of these movies are very... Um, 
cheaply made, but not unartistically so. Uh, Wakamatsu really pushes the medium of filmmaking um, in a lot of fascinating ways for being on such a low budget and under such tight constraints of the Pinkuega requirements, uh, yet he makes a lot of uh, frightening, evil, and cruel movies about sexuality and violence um, that can sometimes be really sexy and very scary. So I've always been very interested in him, especially because he was really closely linked with a lot of the leftist activism uh, going on in the 70s and 80s in Japan. He was kind of associated with the Zengakuren movement as well as the Anpo movement and its, uh, its successors. And that's kind of where we get into the foundation for this movie, United Red Army. While making a career as a Pinkuega director, he was uh, also getting to know uh, such famous women as Shigenobu Fusako, who um, became kind of one of the founders of the United Red Army, a real-life uh, communist militant uprising force uh, that kind of petered out in Japan. And she fled the country and was highly wanted by the nation for a long time. Uh, Wakamatsu was good friends with her before her imprisonment in, I think, the early 2000s, perhaps, in which she uh, declared that the United Red Army was dead, no more. So following this, uh, Wakamatsu set out to finally make the movie he had been trying to for uh, almost 30 or 40 years of his career with United Red Army. This is a movie depicting the true historic events that led to the petering out and sort of the functional death of um, this militant group called the United Red Army. Uh, they initially were doing a lot of student organizing and political protest and demonstrations. And um, among some leadership change, they decided to take out a certain number of groups in their Tokyo headquarters, I guess you can say, uh, and go out to Nagano Prefecture, into the mountains where they set up camp and decided to undergo very strict military training um, as means to kind of help set a foundation for their insurgent uprising over the country, hopefully sweeping the proletariat up into a mass global leftist revolt. Uh, as we all know, that did not happen. But what I think many leftists, both in America and even in Japan, many people do not know about the history of this certain group um, but basically, while camping out in the mountains, they killed themselves off one by one until they were basically reduced to a group of only the few and far between. And the way that these deaths took place is through a means that Maoists will be familiar with called self-critique. The purpose of self-critique is supposed to question uh, your position as a communist or a leftist or a socialist, what have you. You're supposed to question your merits, uh, admit your errors, and specifically state how you can improve on them as a means of advancing the uh, global revolution. However, but this sort of self-critique was taken to its logical extreme uh, when some more recently put into power individuals within the, within the movement um, Nagata Hiroko and Moritsuneo, they, uh, both lovers, uh, really took self-critique to its complete end and basically inspired several of these young, early 20s activists camping out in this army base um, to beat themselves to death, 
to beat other members of their party to death um, and create a sense of mass fear among these uh, young communists out in the woods. When the police eventually caught on, they pursued half of the camp. The others escaped um, to a mountainside town in Nagano Prefecture, Asama, and um, they overtook a local inn. Uh, they holed up in there. There was a local woman who worked within the um, inn holed up in there with them. Um, they said they didn't keep her as a hostage, and uh, they treated her very well while she was there. She was not supposed to be a part of it, but they were trapped, and uh, there they were. And it led to a uh, multi-day shootout with the cops of uh, really extreme tension uh, before eventually the police were able to get in and um, arrest these members of the United Red Army, kind of bringing a swift end to a lot of the more violent and radical action being taken by leftists in Japan in this era. So that's the context of this movie. And this movie is United Red Army. It is a, uh, it's part documentary. It's part uh, dramatic reenaction of the history and events leading up to this conflict in Asama. Like Inland Empire, this is made with uh, cameras that <laughs> the average filmgoer will not find particularly appealing. Um, the look of it is really, really dry and aromantic. Uh, it was shot on a very small budget. Wakamatsu, in fact, mortgaged his house in order to fund the movie. He felt so strongly about getting this uh, film made that he literally gave up his house, uh, mortgaged it, and used it in the final shootout sequence as uh, one of their main sets. He felt very desperately to make this movie, and so the first hour of it is really mostly documentary with some uh, very convincing moments laced within in which uh, we kind of have these dramatic reenactments of um, events going on during this time uh, until the second and third portions in which it is a straight adaptation of the events in Nagano Prefecture. Now, for me to give a movie five stars, it really requires of me a um, profound like change in perspective. The movie has to like sit in me in a way that I am no longer the same as I was going in, which is why I have very few movies rated at this, but I will say now that this is a five-star film. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. And the reason is that um, over the past few years, I have been uh, gradually going <laughs> further left. I've been doing a lot of Marxist readings and trying to um, make myself more exposed to this line of thinking. Um, and as I've been doing this, I've found myself, especially reading about the history of Japan's um, culture with Marxism and with radical left action, I have found myself getting very pessimistic. Uh, Another Japanese film about the student movements uh, called um, Night and Fog in Japan, directed by Oshima, that movie really pressed the shit out of me because it showed a leftist movement in collapse and said there is no hope because we are all doomed to our ideological circling in which we cannot say anything with substance in which uh, we are just doomed to continually eat our own movement from these constant ideological criticisms that we impose on ourselves. Uh, we often lose sight of revolution because we are too busy in theory, and we are too busy um, abstracting ourselves from the material struggle until we're at the point in which the material struggle no longer exists, and the entire movement is nothing but theory 
and disaster. And um, I read um, an excellent nonfiction book called Dissenting Japan, also kind of outlined a lot of this for me. And it all came to a head in this Wakamatsu film, in which he argues that not only is leftism, but all political action and all hope for any political success in the world is doomed not only to no success, but doomed to violent destruction and death. This movie, while adapting a story set in the politics of the left, is quite universal, I think. And you really get the sense of that in the second and third acts where it becomes less of a political film and more of a human drama. And we follow a lot of these young activists really closely as their lives are upended and they are slowly pressed um, into just a fucking disc of dismay. Like a, they, are, they are hydraulically pressed until they are so thin and spread out that they have no being whatsoever except pain and suffering and hopelessness. And you can kind of see um, in the film how the head honchos and the leaders are um, kind of proud of this result because in their mind, what they are doing is they are pressing out all immaterial drama. They're, they're pressing out all of the anti-revolutionary thought until you are literally just revolution condensed. However, it does not end up like that. The end result is um, suffering and pain and hopelessness. One of the main characters depicted in this film. In this film, uh, a young actress, Sakai Maki, uh, she plays a Toyama Mieko. And her character is probably the least adjusted of all of these uh, young communists getting together for the revolution. And she continues to wear makeup while she's in this camp. She wears her mother's ring. Uh, she keeps her hair long. And slowly, the other members start pressing on her. Why are you wearing makeup? Why aren't you working hard enough during our exercises? Why are you wearing this ring? Why is your hair long? None of this is benefiting the revolution. What are you all doing this for? Um, and she is kind of sedated with this criticism until the point that her moment of self-critique leads to her bludgeoning herself with her own fists as if they're weapons until she's unrecognizable. And in a scene that goes for maybe three or four minutes, we watch as she looks at her mutilated face done in by her own hands, and she begins to cry. I can say I have not ever felt such a unique level of horror in a movie outside of this moment. In that moment, I kind of looked at myself and my own political leanings, and I thought, how are we going to get a revolution going? Like, how are we going to escape capitalism? And I watched this young woman beat her face in and then look at what she had become thereafter, and it's not that I felt hopelessness in the left or in communism or in Marxism or in, you know, any of these, any of these, you know, large scale ideas. I just felt hopelessness about humanity. And it's a really tragic film because that's maybe like the centerpiece moment of um, drama in which you see all of these earnest young people doing their best to try and fight for what they think is correct and what I think is correct um, their praxis is wrong, and it leads to a lot of death. And I do think occasionally the film is a little heavy-handed and doesn't really allow for um, that kind of empathy. But with this character, uh, you really do see that empathy because it cuts to her activism during the student protests uh, and shows her in moments of complete joy. Because I think the film suggests to you that, yes, like activism and fighting for what's right is what 
does bring joy to the human experience and the human condition. However, the human nature is what's pounding out this goodness and innocence from us. Humans are bound and doomed to stop themselves from learning, (laughs) stop themselves from learning and growing and solving these large-scale problems of our climate. And all we get from it is all these young dead people. Am I saying that this movie has, like, swayed me away from communism or from leftism? Like, not even in the slightest. Like, in many ways, I think it actually makes me feel more motivated to find a way in which we can create a praxis and we can finally find a way to stop capitalism en masse. I think seeing it fail so spectacularly is actually a really productive way of uh, interrogating activists and uh, thinkers of the left into saying, what can we do? What are we supposed to do? And I don't have an answer. Neither does this movie. But all the same, I, I do still feel motivated to go out and find one. So while I said this is, is a really pessimistic, dark feature, I do also feel inspired to find the way that does work and find a way just in myself and in my immediate community to make leftist thinking and make radical action uh, something feasible and something productive and something of joy and not of the death and despair that we get in this film. So like I said, this movie has really shaken up my thinking um, it disturbed me. I still can't get that fucking image out of my head of this girl with her face beaten in by her own hands, let alone all the other deaths of people po- fucking tied to posts, uh, people stabbed as they're tied up, uh, young people losing their siblings, um, all under this extraordinary rage from these two leaders. Uh, I think the acting is really convincing and it gives a lot of, of the pain. Uh, I just... It was really visceral to watch, Um, and it's visceral in a way that I think is productive and is trying to say something, create a theme, um, and ask you to figure out what to do next. So hopefully we can all think about that together on my faggoty little podcast here. (laughs) So yeah, Wakamatsu Koji's Jitsuroku Rengo Seki-gun Asama-san Soei no Michi. Hoshiwa Itsutsu. Five stars, girls. Five stars. You gotta watch it. It's three hours long. It's very painful. It's very dry. It looks like a block of cheese. It's beautiful. Please watch it. So, uh, quickly, last on tonight. This is going much longer than I anticipated, but I do want to uh, mention briefly the music I've been listening to. Um, I'm about to get into the new Katy Perry album. <laughs> Woohoo! Because uh, I plan to talk about it next week. So, I'm going to leave that one alone. Uh, but I am going through my Drake resurgence. I'm listening to Take Care all the time. Uh, Take Care, his best album by far. And I find that um, Drake's emotionality is still sharper and more relatable and truer and darker uh, than it is on any of his other albums. And I love nothing more than an emoting man. I think Drake is still to this day one of the few male musicians who has a true thumb on the pulse of... uh, the male emotional experience. So loving that. I've also been uh, revisiting Gwen Stefani's Love Angel Music Baby. This is uh, one of the first albums of my cognizance as a human being. It came out in 2008, and I remember being in Germany with my mother uh, while we watched uh, the <laughs> we watched the VMAs. I think, uh, yeah, we watched the VMAs together, and uh, I saw. 
uh, Gwen's performance of Holla Backgirl and was immediately entranced. So Gwen Stefani was probably, after Britney Spears, one of the first women I ever truly stand. Uh, and I don't know why, but I kind of just like slipped back into this record and it has aged so well. Every song is pure pop Frankenstein nonsense in the best way possible. There are so many different moving parts going on here from songs like What You Waiting For to Bubble Pop Electric to Rich Girl. Like, Gwen Stefani is the pinnacle of theater kid shit. Like, she took theater kid shit and she uh, made it work. For that alone, you should listen to this album or revisit it because no one else ever has been able to manifest theater kid energy into a successful avenue. Gwen Stefani is the only one. And uh, what she manifests it into is a lot of uh, brazen displays of personality and character and persona that are often really stupid and campy and sometimes offensive. But uh, it's just like refreshing to see a pop star just... Uh, really go for it like that. So it also really helps that every single song is a fucking anthem. Like, I cannot skip any song on this except that very awkward racism song at the end with Andre 3000 uh, that is convincing nobody. But um, I do think that it's nice that uh, Gwen Stefani took out time to have, like, an earnest uh, racial discussion on her <laughs> on her album. <laughs> no one was expecting that when they listened to No Doubt. And I guess Gwen Stefani has kind of been, like, labeled, like, the great cultural appropriator. But you know what? I was listening to Harajuku Girls, which is kind of, like, the big offensive uh, moment of this album. And after being in Japan for two years and learning the language and, you know, getting more intimately associated with the culture. Oh, God. Intimately. In any case, uh, after getting much closer... (laughs) There's no way to say that it doesn't sound awful. Uh, after getting to know the culture better, um, I kind of find that Gwen Stefani actually gets, like, the Harajuku, like, art movement, like, and the fashion, like, better than anyone else I've seen refer to it. And, I mean, just, like, look at Pitchfork. Like, they see one video of, like, Kyari Pamu Pamu, and they're like, oh, that's that's Harajuku. No, 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 no. I honestly think what Gwen was selling on that song is, like, more authentically Harajuku, like, from the way she references Vivian Westwood and Komdi Garson, <laughs> my beautiful pronunciation. Like, basically, all of, like, the brands she references, as well as, like, that amazing, like, last bit about, like, deconstructing style, I think that's, like, way truer to, like, what Harajuku used to be about than, like, anyone else has gotten. And, like, yeah, um, I guess she did take, like, four Japanese girls and just, like, toted them around for a while. But it kind of, like, looks like everyone's having fun. I think that she was, like, honest enough about, like, it not being her thing. Like, she, like, really, like, gave uh, room to these Japanese women to, like, shine. That, like, yeah, I guess it's, like, kind of shady. But I'm not going to cancel Gwen Stefani for it. Because I honestly think that she did it in a way that truly works. Anyway, I can, re-listening to this, I can absolutely tell why it, like, set my gay identity in absolute motion, and hopefully, uh, one day or another, I can talk about it again, uh, long term. So thanks for listening to me ramble to myself about Lord knows what for an hour. Jesus. Uh, Wilson left after 20 minutes after taking pictures of me, so uh, thanks, Wilson, if you're listening to this. Um, I'll be back next week with, um, I think two new episodes, 
uh, going to talk about the new Katy Perry album and something else that I'm not going to reveal yet. So thanks for listening. I will speak to all of you very soon. Ja, mata ne.